0: Welcome to Work and Play, the podcast of Kinsanji Brooks, Smith & Profit. Here we discuss employment news and provide practical insights and tips that you can use at your company or in your practice. I'm your host, Susan Basford Wilson. With me is my co-host and partner, Sherry Silverman. Sherry, after our last episode LNE-TV, I have had quite a few people tell me that they've never seen Gilmore Girls or they've never watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I am saddened and disappointed by these reports, and so I'm not going to come out and ask you if you rushed home to expand your TV repertoire, but I'm willing to bet you still have a bit of homework to do in that department.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. (laughs) No surprise, right? For today, though, I thought we would turn to something not nearly as fun and entertaining and discuss some of the recent COVID-19 workplace updates. It's been months since we've addressed coronavirus topics, and there have been a lot of developments and things we have learned since then.
0: Oh, that's true. I've learned a lot about this topic over the past several months, including very important things, such as what I'm going to call the seven stages of COVID nineteen.
1: I think I'm going to like this.
0: Let's hear it. Well, much like the seven stages of grief, it starts off with denial or disbelief. Oh,
1: disbelief. We haven't traveled to the state of disbelief in quite some time. Way to
0: bring it back. (laughs) I'm not actually sure that I've left the state of disbelief since March, but Uh anyway. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. All right, keep going. The second stage was frantic, uncontrollable, late-night Googling to determine if this whole coronavirus thing was fake news, followed quickly by frantically trying to order toilet paper online because you realize that you are running out and every physical store within a 50-mile radius is out.
1: Yes, I think many of us did that, or at least one of those things.
0: The third stage of COVID-19 is bizarre deep cleaning. It's like, if you go after the baseboards with a toothbrush, clearly that will ward off COVID-19.
1: Okay, th- this was literally me for an entire weekend, plus you know some quality <laughs> time with my vacuum, but how did you know?
0: Well, we did have that episode about employee monitoring. No, but, no. But, but. It's because I decided it was totally rational to deep clean my wrought iron staircase railing and the grout in the bathrooms. Clearly very logical decisions. Um, Stage four is making large amounts of banana bread using your homemade sourdough starter.
1: Yes, I will say many loaves of banana bread and all sorts of other baked goods have been made and unfortunately eaten in my (laughs) household during this period of time, but I still have yet to catch on to that homemade sourdough starter trend.
0: I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I I totally jumped on that bandwagon, and you're then
1: that, you're that person.
0: <laughs> I, I killed my starter <laughs> after leaving it cold and hungry in the fridge for two or maybe three weeks. So. I've concluded I'm not a good sourdough starter mom, but my actual kids are fine. Well,
1: you know, you know that's what really matters. All right, so where is binge watching random Netflix documentaries, Tiger King and Gilmore Girls on this list?
0: Well, that's stage 5, which also coincides with stage 6, which is melancholy and dejection, feelings of isolation and loneliness. Some of us may also experience rage, in this stage as well. Okay, and then what's the final stage? I think it's acceptance and hope. I'm I'm hoping that's what it is, but honestly, I'm not there yet, so I can't say. Um, it might be another round of eating banana bread while watching The Office.
1: Yes, well, I have to say I've mastered quite a few of these, and while finding out which store is adequately stocked with toilet papers probably very practical information for all of our listeners, I do feel like I need to direct our conversation back to some of the actual return to work decisions that employers are facing now and address some of the tricky questions and recent
0: updates. Hey, COVID-19 is, is horrible in every way. And so, I think finding something to laugh at right now is is basically a public servantess. And you're you're ruining my fun by trying to get me back <laughs> on track to discuss actual legal stuff.
1: You know, sometimes it happens when I have my lawyer hat on, but I'll try to throw in some interesting
0: scenarios along the way. All right, all right. And in the category of being all lawyerly, it probably goes without saying, but today's disclaimer is the same one that we uh, said on the last COVID-19 episode. The guidance and the laws in this area are still constantly changing. As we recorded this show, a New York judge had just vacated parts of the FFCRA regulations and... We will discuss some of the red flag issues and questions that companies need to consider today, but before you make any significant decisions in this area, please check out the latest updates and talk to your employment lawyer to make sure that your choices are not going to create the next big lawsuit against your company. Completely agree.
1: Okay, so I wanted to start out by summarizing some of the DOL's newest FAQs on the FFCRA. And I just realized I just said a lot of letters. So for those who don't speak our alphabet soup on a language on a daily basis, the FFCRA is the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And that's the federal law that provides employees with paid leave for certain COVID-19-related reasons if they work for a company that has fewer than 500 employees or a public employer.
0: Right. And those leave provisions are the paid sick leave component and then the expanded FMLA leave component, which is the leave that provides parents with a a partially paid leave if they cannot work because they need to care for a child whose school or place of care is closed. Exactly. Exactly. And the DOL
1: has been issuing FAQs to help provide some guidance to interpret the new law, and they do so by periodically adding questions and answers to this running list.
0: Yeah, they're up to 97 as of the day we recorded this episode. Yep. And there's nothing really earth-shattering in the most recent
1: editions, but I wanted to highlight one of them, um, number 97, in fact. It's a scenario about an employer that furloughed all employees and is now selecting which employees to return to work. The question is whether the employer can extend the furlough for certain employees who the company believes will need to take FFCRA leave to care for a child if they're called back to work in person, instead of just bringing them back to work.
0: Yeah, so... I guess the idea would be that I, as a company, I'm going to keep someone on furlough instead of bringing them back because that would be an administrative headache for me. Or, hey, perhaps the company thinks it's actually helping that employee by keeping him or her on furlough and thus eligible to receive full unemployment benefits. I mean, I, I can kind of see the the employer's logic here, but obviously that's a big old no. The company needs to make sure it is not selecting which employees return to work based on any protected characteristics or childcare needs, no matter how inconvenient it may be, or whether you as the employer think you're actually helping out. Um, Making these decisions would not only be discriminatory, but it would also violate the FFCRA provisions that prohibit employers from discriminating or retaliating against employees who need the leave.
1: And that makes sense to people like us who deal with this on a daily basis, but I can see the frustration for these smaller companies who are just desperate to get business going again and want to select employees to return to work who will actually be able to return and work on a regular basis. The struggle is
0: real here, but if you can't pick the employees based on who's not a parent or who doesn't have a compromised immune system, which I feel I should repeat is a very bad idea, then what is the best practice here?
1: If employers are bringing everyone back from a furlough, then they need to bring everyone back and then give leave to those who are qualified. But if a company is not in a position to reinstate all employees and is going to be making selections about which employees are going to return, the company should ensure the selection process is objective and not at all influenced by an employee's age or disability or parental responsibilities. So perhaps a company will base this on seniority or by categorizing critical personnel or some other objective criteria. But whatever the case may be, once you've made those decisions, then you can tackle the other questions about who needs leave, what accommodations might be needed, and so forth as they arrive.
0: Good point. And of course, you as the employer will allow employees to use all the leave to which they may be entitled. All right. Another big agency that had a recent update is the CDC. Previously, they had a couple of different criteria an employer could implement in determining when it was safe to allow employees to return to work, and one of those options was for employees to receive two negative test results in a row, at least 24 hours apart. But that's not what they're saying now, is it? No.
1: Now the CDC is only recommending testing for a specific set of circumstances and no longer recommending testing as a general method to determine when to discontinue home isolation.
0: That's a bit of a shift, though. Given all the stories I've heard about my friends waiting 10 or 14 days to get a test result, I'm, I'm glad that they've made that change. I mean, if you're waiting 14 days, it's often a moot point. Correct. Now,
1: keep in mind that certain industries and certain states and localities have their own requirements or recommendations, and I think many employers are wise to follow CDC guidance where they live in a state that does not have its own recommendations or where there's no specific industry standard. That way, if they end up having an outbreak and an employee sues for contracting COVID-19 in the workplace, they can show they used reasonable CDC-approved procedures and were not negligent.
0: So you raise a good point there about employers being sued. And that's clearly happening, so let's talk about it a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Many employees, many of my clients rather, have asked me about having their employees or their customers sign waivers or releases so that if the employee or the customer does end up contracting COVID-19, then that person would be prohibited from going after the company for any type of damages. And I know you have some thoughts on this subject, Sherry.
1: Oh, yes. I definitely have a lot of thoughts on this. First, as of right now, politicians are battling it out as to whether any new relief package will protect employers from coronavirus lawsuits. So stay tuned on that. Some states have already passed laws that grant businesses immunity from civil liability for COVID-19-related claims. Now, although the laws in these states differ, the general principle is that the companies have to ensure safety rules are followed and no laws are broken in order to receive the benefit of any immunity.
0: Yeah, typically there's, there's not going to be any immunity for gross negligence or recklessness or intentional actions. So it's not as if any of these um, state-specific laws provide a company a do whatever I want and get away with it badge. That's a movie quote, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Yes. All right. But yes, let's assume you're in a state that does not have any such law or, you know, an employer says, you know what? I'm doing all the stuff the CDC says, but I want to make sure I have additional protection. So I'm going to have my employees sign a waiver and say they won't sue the company if they get sick. What's your reaction to that, Susan?
0: Well, I'd say there's a pretty solid chance that those waivers are not going to be enforceable for a variety of reasons. Um, In most states, waivers will not apply to gross negligence or willful or intentional conduct, so it's not going to help you there. And prospective waivers aren't generally favored in employment law, or you'd have every applicant sign one along with their application. Um, further, employees generally cannot waive workers' compensation claims. It's, it's has public policy issues, so the release isn't worthwhile in that scenario. And finally, there are some states, uh, I'm looking at you, California, where there are actually laws creating a rebuttable presumption that workers who contract COVID-19 have a workplace injury that is covered by the workers' comp system.
1: Yeah, so there are all sorts of legal problems with enforcing these. And on top of that, I think it can create some real morale and confidence issues, as well as some PR concerns. I've seen so many employers getting bad press nowadays for the policy decisions they're making, even if they're totally lawful. So while I suppose you could have your employees sign some sort of waiver, I think employers need to weigh the practicalities as well as... The legalities
0: of whether they're even worth the paper they're written on. I agree. So what else is hot off the press as far as COVID-19 news is concerned?
1: Well, we just experienced another
0: COVID-19 whiplash thanks to OSHA. <laughs> COVID-19 whiplash, is that is that another new symptom? <laughs> Uh
1: not that I know of yet. You know, they they're constantly adding different symptoms. But no, I'm referring to the concept that these governmental agencies are issuing FAQs and guidance and then suddenly doing an about face or pulling them without a trace.
0: Oh, yes. I know what you're talking about. I would swear that there's a nugget of advice or a recommendation there and then when I go to find it, it's it's utterly vanished as if it never existed. I I was beginning to wonder if I uh, had, had lost it until I spoke to other colleagues who experienced the same thing. Yes, it has happened
1: on multiple occasions. So the latest one here is with OSHA. In July, OSHA gave new instructions for reporting work-related hospitalization cases of COVID-19, which required employers to report cases of inpatient hospitalization due to confirmed COVID-19 within 24 hours of learning about it. The key here was regardless of the amount of time that had passed since the employee was last exposed to the coronavirus at work. Hmm. However, on the weekend of July 25th, under dark cover, I suppose, OSHA (laughs) took down that FAQ from its website without publishing any notice that it was doing so. And the only thing that it left posted was general information with instructions about how to report any case involving either an inpatient hospitalization or death from a work-related injury or illness.
0: Okay. So presumably the withdrawal of the FAQ brings us back to Treating work-related COVID-19 cases like any other case under the existing hospitalization reporting rule, which requires work-related inpatient hospitalization to re- be reported only if the hospitalization occurs within a 24-hour period of the work-related incident. And the incident in a COVID-19 case, as with any other illness, would be the last exposure in the workplace to whatever caused or contributed to the condition, right? Right. And OSHA has not offered any
1: explanation for the sudden withdrawal of the reporting FAQ. It's possible that the agency received many objections to the new interpretation because it was contrary to the existing regulation. But regardless of the reason, with the withdrawal of the FAQ, Our OSHA attorneys are advising employers to report hospitalizations if they occur within 24 hours of the last exposure in the workplace.
0: Okay. I am not an OSHA expert, I will freely admit. And I rarely say the word hospitalization so many times in five (laughs) minutes, but it seems like this was an employer-friendly change,
1: yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah. Um, I would agree, I, You know, for now, at least, until they change the FAQ again.
0: All right, so that covers some of the very latest in administrative guidance. What challenging questions are you hearing from our clients right now, Sherry? Well, I think employers are
1: figuring out what screening questions they should be asking and getting more comfortable with mask requirements and temperature checks, although There are really interesting scenarios that come into play and localities that have their own quirky requirements. But lately, what's been on a lot of people's minds is whether employers can require their employees to get COVID-19 vaccine, well, when it exists, eventually, hopefully in the future.
0: I love the optimism. I'm quite a planner myself. So I say it's not too early to at least start thinking about this. Um, and, you know, in times past, we would have said that healthcare providers can require vaccinations, particularly if there's a major health threat, but that other require employers, pardon me, requiring across the board immunizations are often best advised to simply encourage their employees to be vaccinated, though, I don't know, with COVID-19 are all bets off now. Well, it's a good
1: question. I think that looking at administrative guidance as it pertains to vaccines for other illnesses and diseases would probably be a good place to start the analysis.
0: I agree. Um, in March, the EEOC issued guidance addressing whether employers can compel employees to take the flu vaccine. And the EEOC helpfully noted that there is no COVID-19 vaccine yet, thanks to EEOC, Um, And the agency's opinion for the flu vaccine is that an employee could be entitled to an exemption, meaning they wouldn't have to be vaccinated if the employee has a disability that prevents him or her from taking the vaccine. The exemption would be a reasonable accommodation that the employer would be required to grant then, unless it would result in an undue hardship to the company.
1: And another potential exemption is if an employee has a sincerely held religious belief that prevents the employee from taking the vaccine. In that case, the employer must also provide a reasonable accommodation unless it would pose an undue hardship.
0: And of course, while we always reserve the right to disagree with the EEOC, I think that we'd probably all agree that the um, undue hardship criteria for either is a very fact-specific legal analysis that you need to think through and document, please, before just saying, eh, it's too hard to make an accommodation. Right.
1: Completely agree. But ultimately, because of these exemptions and the risk of discrimination, the EEOC advised that it is best practice to encourage employees to take the blue vaccine rather than to require it, like you mentioned earlier. We don't know if the EOC will issue similar guidance when a COVID-19 vaccine is approved, but I would expect they will say
0: something about it. I'm sure you're right, though. I have to say, as compared with the flu, I think the threat imposed by COVID-19 might make employers more inclined to require the vaccine especially when you think about the differences between the diseases and all of the necessary safety measures that are required of employers due to COVID-19. I mean, I got to tell you, my county executive never required me to wear a mask and stay six feet away from everybody else for the flu.
1: Yeah,
0: definitely. So, We have a little
1: bit of time before employers need to make these decisions on a COVID 19 vaccine, but this is useful information as it relates to the flu vaccine because flu season is
0: just around the corner. Thank you for that cheerful reminder, my friend. (laughs) Unfortunately, I think. Full of joy today. You're right. right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's. I think we have time to share one more question I've been seeing, and which, as a parent, is near and dear to my heart. The FFCRA provides for um, partially paid leave if an employee has to care for his or her child because the school is closed. What happens in the scenario where the school will be opening in person, but they provide parents with an option for virtual learning? If the parent slash employee chooses virtual learning for his or her child, is that employee eligible for FFCRA leave?
1: Good question, and there are tons of ways to really pull at the heartstrings in this scenario, but I still think the answer is no. As of right now, the regulations specifically provide that this leave is only available if the physical school is closed. Now, the employee may have very good reasons for choosing the virtual option, but if the school is open, that reason for leave does not appear to apply. I'll be curious to see if the DOL adds some FAQs on this as schools reopen or kind of reopen, but as of now, this would not be a qualifying
0: reason. I agree. Well, I'm kind of afraid to ask, but do you have any wild COVID-related stories that you'd like to share before we wrap up this episode?
1: Are you asking me if I have a Florida man COVID story? (laughs) I have plenty. Um, It's hard to choose, but you know what? Actually, there's one out of California that's just too good not to share. Mm -hmm. There was an employee at a coffee shop, a barista, who refused to serve a customer who wasn't wearing a mask. And then the customer posted a photo of the barista on social media, calling him out for refusing to serve her. In a fantastic (laughs) turn of events, the post inspired supporters of the employee to start a GoFundMe account to raise um, what they call tips, um, commending him for standing up to a Karen in the wild. Um, and those are the words of the guy who set up the GoFundMe account. Not mine, not mine. Um, and it and it quickly raised one hundred and five thousand dollars. Wow. No, the customer defended herself and said she was discriminated against because she was unable to wear a mask, citing, get this, a 2015 pelvic exam, and a handwritten note
0: from an anonymous chiropractor. Way to double down, ma'am, though. I'm not sure that I want to know how the 2015 pelvic exam is relevant to wearing a mask.
1: Yeah. Um, And it gets better. So now that customer is claiming that she's owed half of that $105,000 that was raised for the employee. She says she's spoken to attorneys about taking her case, but I guess they're too expensive. So she has set up her own GoFundMe account to pay for her lawyers to get half of that money. And, you know, not surprisingly, she's not
0: doing quite well with that. Wow. Go figure. Um, it's not my area of law, but I i doubt any lawyer would want to take her case on a contingency basis. Agreed. Um,
1: so did I make good on my promise to, to throw in some interesting scenarios?
0: You did. It seems like there's never a shortage of those in our world. Agreed. Agreed. Thanks for joining me today, Sherry. Thanks, Susan. Before we sign off, I want to make my typical request of our listeners. As I've said before, we are a new podcast, and it would be wonderful if those of you listening would follow us, rate us, and especially leave us a written review on iTunes so that other people interested in employment law can find us. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you tune in again in a couple of weeks for the next episode.